From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Heather Clancy, greeting you today from Northern New Jersey. Happy 35th anniversary to Joel McCower, who is off this week celebrating with his spouse. On this week's edition, do corporate boards have the skills to act on the climate crisis? Demand for sustainability roles continues to outpace the supply of skilled professionals. And we chat with one of this year's Women in Sustainability Leadership Awards honorees, Lindsay Dahl. It's May 12th, 2023. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me today as co-host from across a couple of rivers in Brooklyn, New York, is Green Biz Senior Vice President of Sustainability, Dylan Siegler. Hello, Dylan. Hi, Heather. Thank you so much for having me on 350. It's a pleasure. It's a lovely day in our world right now. And we sure is besides the pollen that is um, destroying the inside of my head. But other than that, I'm loving this 70 degree sunny weather. Yes, my trees are shedding all over the place, which is lovely. This is spring. I love it. And we've both been enjoying the cultural wonders of New York City this week. I'd love to ask you, because I'm very jealous, how was the dog show? Heather, I got to attend the Westminster Kennel Club dog show that's been going on for more than 100 years. <laughs> and um, it was such an oxytocin boost for me this week. <laughs> um, so you can go, there's a lot of different things you can do at the dog show, a lot of different tickets you can get. And of course, most are familiar with the televised aspect of the dog show, which I did get to attend in person, which was very fun. But the, the main event for me was that if you go during the day, you actually get to meet some of the dogs, you get to walk amongst them in the grooming tent. And I just had such a fun time. Um, at one point, I found myself accidentally in the holding area for the golden retrievers before they went in for their breed <laughs> judging. So I looked around me and I was surrounded by 15 perfect, beautiful, friendly, perfectly groomed golden retrievers. It, and I, I said to my friend, I think we might have died and gone to heaven. <laughs> I, I I would have totally loved that. My um, my love was always the terrier classes. I love the Wheatons and the Airedales. And I'm always a big fan of the, I don't know why. I, I don't know. I think it's their attitude or something. They're absolutely so full of personality. The Karen Terriers were my absolute favorite yesterday. So um, I'm with you on Terrier love. Well, so I went over to, I don't know where this show, dog show was, but I was in, with, uh, in one of the famous theaters of uh, New York this week, Symphony Space, where there's a lot of um, sort of focused uh, talks and interviews that, that happen throughout the year. I got to see Tom Hanks. Uh, talk about his new book. Love I didn't even know he. It. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't even know he was writer. Um, he has a novel out called "The Making of Another Major Motion Picture Masterpiece," and I just have to say, like everything you think about Tom Hanks, like he looks like a really approachable, funny guy. He he just is. Like he just his persona is very similar to. I, I'm going to really date myself. Do you remember Bosom Buddies? 
Bosom Buddies was the show he was on before he was discovered or before he got splashed. The you know he did and he talked about splash by the way, um, and yes he did do his own swimming, but uh, it it was really interesting to just to hear it. a movie insider and that's what this book is about like how you make a movie and just I'm excited to read it. Um, it was just a fun week. Sounds like it was a fun week for both of us. Absolutely. I'm glad to hear you got to you got to go see that. And wow, Splash is not a film I've thought about in quite a while. Some enduring memories from um from my late childhood there. Well, and I just, you know, I have to say one final thing, because um he got kind of choked up when he talked about the late John Candy and what a great guy he was. Um and so yeah, I just it, I just walked away thinking, wow, you know what? Tom Hanks is kind of a cool dude, and, and now he's a novelist. Okay, well, there you go. Uh, well, let's, let's stop chit-chatting about our week, and, and let's really talk about the week in review. Okay, Dylan, I especially curated this week's stories to a- appeal to your expertise with Thank you. Yes. And I wanted to start us off with Joel McCower's piece. Uh, so even though he was out this week, he managed to pull off a column. This one is on boards. Uh, and the question he poses is, can, can corporate boards rise to the sustainability challenge? This is something we've debated um, many times here on this podcast the uh, obviously many of the public companies have boards that are very unfamiliar with the the idea of climate crisis, um, have no experience or little experience in environmental, social, and governance issues, and there was a bunch of polls out, kind of um, you know suggesting that there's a pretty big gap between um, the desire and the competence of of the individuals on these uh, boards of directors. Dylan, what was your takeaway from? Joel's piece, and what do you find in your own discussions with uh, the world of sustainability professionals? Well, Heather, as you mentioned, this is a perennial issue, and it's coming to the fore, like a lot of sustainability issues in corporations, as regulations come, come from all directions in Europe and in the U.S. Sustainability is really coming to the attention of boards of directors and of of other corporate leaders who haven't wanted to think that sustainability is important. Now they're being forced to think that. So the need for boards to come up to speed is um, the rubber's meeting the road. I'll put it that way. And so Joel does a good job of checking in with some of the premier experts in the board engagement space in sustainability. Our old friend, Hella Bank-Jorgensen, who runs the education and training firm Competent Boards, is somebody that I look to for what's next in boards. And the last time Hella and I talked about this, she started our conversation by saying, we need to look at what boards are able to do from sustainability and to beyond sustainability. So what is a future board? What does it look like? What does a future board of directors look like? Um, from the perspective of governance overall. So I love, I always love her high level perspective. And, um, and she, I think, does a good job of saying that when you actually get board members to establish a sustainability mindset, they become more curious, they become, um, they become people who are going to see the relationships between things in, in your, in your corporation writ large. Um, I, I will say the, 
from my perspective as a sustainability professional, we loved and we hated when boards were engaged. And so when you're inside a company and you're trying to do sustainability, you kind of want a little bit of freedom to do what you need to do without people getting in your way. And so sometimes you want a board that's just going to ratify what you say when you go in every quarter or every half. And sometimes you want a board that's going to be a little bit more uh, engaged and a little bit more in the in the weeds with you. I think as we move forward and sustainability becomes more of a regulatory issue in the U.S., that's going to be um, that. I think that's going to change. Yeah, and I'm going to just put one little final bow on this one. I think um, for me, one of the most illuminating things in the piece was the uh, need to avoid confusing sustainability expertise with a sustainability mindset. So, the advice coming through here from Laura Sanderson, who's with uh, Russell Reynolds. She was talking about basically when you're recruiting, you know, make sure that these executive directors and also your executives, right, have have this mindset, not necessarily the expertise that'll get in your way, <laughs> like as you were just talking about, but at least the ability to process um, when you need them to process. So anyway, so speaking of hiring, I want to go to two other stories that that I plucked up this this week. We have the annual LinkedIn uh, report on different professions. And this one is uh, its latest green skills report. So it's focused on the skills that are mentioned in postings on the throughout the LinkedIn network. Uh, and it talks really about how, you know, the share of jobs that are requiring these skills, uh, one of the stats here, 9.6% in 2015 to 13.3% in 2021. So quite a big jump. Um, at the same time, though, the and the postings uh, for that they've se we've seen since that time period have grown eight percent, but the talent pool has only grown by six percent. So I'm gonna I'm gonna put a pin in this just a moment. I'm just gonna mention the other story that that we're gonna talk about here in a second, um, which is how universities can help fill the climate jobs gap. So we know there's a, a gap here between demand and supply. Um, and we we got to figure out how to fill it. So Dylan, over to you. Well, again, I feel like these are the bread and butter issues that corporate sustainability professionals are looking to every day. We're looking at how to engage your board and maybe sometimes how not to engage your board. And we're also looking at how to find the talent that's going to be able to um, often do more with less and to have a really wide range of, of skills and, and understandings. It used to be that when we talked about uh, green jobs, we were talking about how to wire solar panels. And, um, and I think increasingly we're talking about white collar green jobs. And it's a very, it's a, that itself is a mindset shift for the field. So I was interested to see in this LinkedIn uh, call for green upskilling that the um, the report highlighted that corporate services, manufacturing, and energy and mining were the sectors most likely to advertise mm -hmm. for green skills. Mm -hmm. That was a surprise to me. Mining, uh, big one, big one. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I'm excited to see it, but also, I mean, as both this story and the story about how universities can help fill the climate jobs gap highlight, we're not actually doing a great job of 
creating a pipeline of talent to to fill these positions. We're maybe doing better than we used to do when we had no, you know, sustainability MBA programs and there wasn't really any um, ability to 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 take talent straight out of the university system. But we're still really far behind. So um, as the as this second story highlights, we need to solve a mismatch between what the skills are that students are learning and the skills are that are needed for um, for today's economy. Yeah. So in the LinkedIn piece, I, I'm I, I'm going to point out to another uh, sector that that was mentioned that I found particularly interesting. It uh, talks about the need for specialists in the fashion industry. Um, you know, the point being that sectors are not traditional. And that's actually one of the biggest points in this story is that these are not just in sectors that are green or, you know, quote, green. These are skills and specialist skills that need, are ne- necessary in, in everywhere. Um, so the fashion industry, uh, the number of roles requiring expertise in, quote, pollution management, end quote, has snowballed is now 90.6% more prevalent than it was eight years ago. 90.6%. Holy cow. That is quite an increase. You know, like the oops, like they weren't paying attention to it before. And I don't know what pollution management it is, but exactly. But I think we can, we can assume, uh, yes, I am going to assume that it's, it's um, pointing to things like water and, and, and toxic discharges from plants. Absolutely. That anyone who works in in climate change is is working in pollution management. So it's, it's a pretty big category. And for me, like the 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 in- most uh, intriguing thing about um, the university story is is you know the, first of all, there's a couple of schools that are mentioned here. Um, American University's Coquit School of Business uh, focused on adding sustainability management to their program. Um, Columbia Business School, investing in climate finance is one example. I think uh, I've actually, my nephews, two, both of my nephews are going to uh, college, for, you know, as freshmen in in uh, September, and one of them is going to be focusing on chemistry. And um, we were debating, like he was debating between his his schools that he's he's got on, you know, he's he's got to choose, right? And one of them has a green chemistry program associated with it. And I think that's where he's leaning um, because they have that, they have that additional view. And I think, I think for me, um, one of the most important things is going to be the, the, the young people coming into these universities are going to demand that this content is there and that, and universities that don't add it are going to find themselves at a disadvantage um, with incoming incoming freshmen and, and other classes. I think um, the more that every business school out there includes these things in their programs, the better. Um, yeah. Absolutely agree. And yeah. one thing I'll just add from my own experience, when I decided after a few years in the workforce after undergrad that I wanted to go to grad school in sustainability, I was making that choice in the year 2003. There were almost no sustainability-focused programs. Sustainability itself was a new term um, being used in the academia, in the field of academia. And I ended up in an architecture program because there really wasn't a lot of, uh, there wasn't a lot, there weren't a lot of options. 
So, um, and I was happy to, to land there. But if you do a very brief Google search for sustainability graduate programs now, you find a lot more. And so I think the question is, are those programs that are available really the the system is rife with them now, are they offering the types of classes and are they graduating students with the skills that they need to actually succeed in today's workforce? So um, really interesting group of stories you've chosen for us today, Heather. Yep. We got one more. You ready to talk about one more? Super ready. Good. I got to actually finally talk to the new Microsoft CSO, Melanie Nakagawa. Um, they had their usual barrage of environmental news out, which they do right before their fiscal year ends. Their fiscal year runs, I think it's July to July 1st to June 30th or something like that. Anyway, I think um, one of the most interesting and fascinating things about the, the news that they have this week is they just signed an offtake agreement with Hellion Energy, which is one of the nuclear fusion um companies. Like, so this plant is not going to be online for a while, um, but they're putting their, their stake in the, in the ground and saying, we're going to support this, but I don't want to talk all about my own story. Why don't you talk about it and ask me questions? Absolutely. Well, so on the topic of this, um, this fusion energy, I, I know that Microsoft, and you say this in the story, Microsoft has typically been uh, agnostic in terms of where its power comes from, as long as that power is feeding into its carbon negative commitment. So I'm curious, what what did you learn from Melanie in terms of what the impetus was for Microsoft to enter into this agreement? Did she have any, um, any um, good tea to spill about what <laughs> made them excited about making this agreement with Helion? Sadly, no. And I think once once I can find Brian Janis and pin him down, he's uh, runs their uh, renewable energy strategy and and so forth. I think many of you probably know that name, but um, I want to pin him down and ask him. But I think one of the things that um, they they feel like it's very uh, application specific. So they taught the one thing I was able to get out of them that they they felt felt that it would be very applicable for some data centers um, in some very specific places. And I'm not, the, the company's based up near where they are. And I think part of it is that they're trying to just get any zero carbon um, electricity that they can onto the grid. And so they were looking at this from a grid level standpoint. And if they say, we're going to take the, you know, we'll, we'll off take this through Constellation, Constellation's managing the, the, um, the agreement, you know, we we're there. I mean, it's kind of akin to some of these carbon removal contracts that we've seen, you know, where, where companies are coming out and saying, uh, okay, this company doesn't really have its technology out and commercially yet, but when it does, we are willing to buy the offtakes and here's what we'll, we'll, you know, we'll pay this. And so they're, they're essentially, um, you know, betting on, on the future of this technology. I, yeah. And agnostic, I think, well, I mean, I can't help but point out, and I know it's not exactly related, but I can't help but point out that one of the biggest nuclear um, power investors is um, the, the founder of Microsoft, Bill Gates. So Bill Gates has been talking about, it. I'm sure that there is some, there's some influence there maybe. Uh, it's, I don't, I don't think Gates is actually invested in um, this particular company. That's Sam Altman is, is the big investor there. And also um, some other companies, that you, other investors you see from the tech industry. But anyway, 
So I think also one of the things that struck me from this, um, which is something that you, you, I know are thinking about a lot is, um, this year the company managed to actually eke out a small reduction. Um, their, their scope one and two was a pretty big reduction, 22, 22.7%, but overall it was just like, uh, you know, 0.5%. Last time they reported, they actually, um, had an increase in emissions and it was almost all, it was due to scope three. Um, and I think one of the things that really came through my interview with her was that, um, they really need to focus on the grid level change that we need to see happen. And they really need to go out and make some more partnerships that are going to help with that. And this, that's one of the reasons they did this Helion deal. I love that takeaway from this story, and um, and particularly because that rising tide that Microsoft can can bring will raise all boats. So that grid, that that greener grid, is going to really benefit everyone. And so that's a that's a really amazing takeaway. We all, I think, looked with interest upon Melanie's hiring at Microsoft in the fall. Um, because she has such a strong energy and policy background. As you say in the story, she had worked as a special assistant to the president, and she was senior director for climate and energy on the National Security Council at the White House. Those are pretty high-level positions that give you a lot of visibility into how to make change at the policy level. And I'm curious if she um, had anything to share with you about the way that that mentality, a way that thinking on her side might influence the way that she works at Microsoft. So one of the one of the first things I'll say is that she I did when I asked her about policy, she did make it very clear that she's not personally involved because she really shouldn't be um, at this point. And and so she she would only talk about the company. But what I thought was really telling was in her blog about just everything that was going on. There was this point that she made about in Microsoft and other companies wanting to invest more in regions that were uh, putting policies in place that were conducive to a clean grid. So for me, that was just an interesting, a very interesting comment. Like it, it like said to me, and again, here I am like speculating, but that's what I kind of do sometimes. Um, <laughs> Regions that have policies that are conducive to this. So they're looking very closely at what's happening. Um, and like as an example, they're putting money into Southeast Asia uh, and, and policy uh, attention. Their, their Climate Innovation Fund has backed um, something called the Southeast, Southeast Asia Clean Energy Facility. It's really working on early stage um, projects in that region. Um, she's, they're also looking, she talked about India. So like the the places that are trying to make this a priority, a policy priority, are getting attention and will be getting money <laughs> from Microsoft. And I, you know, we know that um, to their credit, they have been one of the most vocal corporations when it comes to supporting clean energy policy. They've really actually, you know, been out there in front. Of course, they also have, you know, very longstanding affiliation with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which kind of raises eyebrows and they've got a lot of, you know, money in oil and gas companies in terms of customers. So there are, they're not, no one's perfect. No company is perfect um, in this world. <laughs> no, no, no one of us is perfect, but 
I think um, if your state or province or country or whatever is putting attention into clean energy and really wanting to invest, they're going to be listening to that and wanting to come and support that. And the ones that aren't may, might not get as much attention. So amazing. I love long-winded answer, but there you go. (laughs) Not at all. No, I I love that you had a chance finally to speak with her. Um, I mean, I guess she's only been on board there for a couple of months now. She's in February. So (laughs) I know um, it feels like it's been an eternity when you uh, when you're watching, when you're watching like we do so closely. So really exciting. Um, and I hope that we'll get regular updates from Melanie Nakagawa through you, Heather, as, as time goes by. Each year, the Women in Sustainability Leadership Awards recognizes 10 or so women who have demonstrated extraordinary courage, innovation, or influence in shaping lasting contributions to the field of corporate sustainability. I'm pleased to welcome one of the 2023 honorees today, Lindsay Dahl. And before we meet her, I'm going to just tell you a little bit about her. She's currently the Chief Impact Officer for Ritual, which is a traceable supplement brand And there she spearheads the brand's sustainability, impact, traceability, and advocacy work. She helped roll out their rigorous made traceable standard and a first of a kind consumer tool called the Certificate of Traceability. This resource lets people see all the ingredients, supplier names, manufacturing locations, tests conducted, and packaging materials used for ritual products. Over the course of her career, Lindsay has spearheaded the passage of over 20 state and federal laws banning toxic chemicals from consumer products. She was previously with Beauty Counter, the largest clean beauty brand, and she also has public sector experience working for leading environmental nonprofits in Washington, D.C. Lindsay, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me here. Much of your work at Ritual and before that at Beauty Counter has centered on traceability of ingredients in particular. I'd love to hear more about um, the current focus, this Made Traceable initiative. What inspired it? Can you and can you provide some insight into how it was developed? Sure. So, taking one step back, traceability, especially as an operator within businesses trying to address safety and sustainability and human rights issues, focusing on those things is all great except for if you don't have good relationships with your suppliers. And so we really believe that traceability is kind of one of the biggest unlocks to solving and tackling these really complicated problems. And traceability is at the core of everything that Ritual has been doing since the company first launched. And it was certainly what attracted me to the brand. Uh, And as you mentioned, we rolled out our made traceable standards this past fall. And what we did is we articulated in detail what traceable science and traceable sourcing means to our company. And what it really is, is it's a framework highlighting seven complicated and sometimes competing interests around having a traceable supply chain and also using the best science to deliver supplements to the market that are delivering on hopefully (laughs) building consumer trust. And trust is at the core of everything we're doing because um, if you think about our core audience, which is someone taking a prenatal vitamin It's a very discerning customer. And those same customers also care about the environment. And so how do we kind of triangulate the multiple needs that people want for consumer products? And in this case, 
um, ingestibles while still making sure we reduce um, our negative impact. And so traceability at the core of everything is not just telling people we're transparent, believe us. It's about showing people receipts. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned seven areas that sometimes compete with each other. Can you give me an example of what you mean by that? Sure. So a great example is we try to use as many clinically studied ingredients as possible. And there's a reason for that because it's actually not standard practice in the industry to always use clinically backed ingredients. Uh, The vast majority or a large majority of those clinically studied ingredients come from high risk regions like China. And so if you look at the pillar of our matriceable standard, where we want to screen and make sure that people and workers are protected within our supply chain, sometimes there's a tension point between those two of um, working with suppliers that have the best in class science and best in class transparency don't always go hand in hand. And when something like that competes, how do you account for that? Is it just declared and then it's up to consumer to decide what to do with that information? It's more a kind of an internal teamwork affair where we basically, our chief scientific officer and myself, have to either try to work with a supplier we want to engage with and work with to hopefully elevate their transparency or their science practices, uh, or oftentimes what it means is finding another supplier that meets the many uh, criteria that are outlined in that matriceable standard. So uh, it, sometimes it takes us four years to launch a product instead of just cranking out products. You know, newness is not a thing for Ritual. Again, from a sustainability perspective, it's one of the things I love about the brand. It's not just focusing on trying to bring high volume and new products um, to grow the company, but really how can we be intentional about every decision we make? Um, And sometimes that means slow product launches. And just being okay with that is something that is kind of baked into a lot of those healthy tension points within the business. What would you say is the most significant impact of this focus of, you know, the made traceable initiative? Is it too early to ask that question? You know, but I'm just curious, like, what have you seen happen since you did it? I think it's a matter of internal and external accountability has been one of the biggest successes. And that's not a particularly sexy answer, but it's an important one, which is our, our business. And long before I joined the company, the kind of integrity around caring about finding safe ingredients, addressing and thinking about contaminants, um, packaging sustainability, those have all been a part of the company ethos, but organizing it and formalizing it has created a helpful framework for us to have kind of guiding principles as we are making hundreds of decisions every single week. Uh, And then it also is about external accountability where we're publicly sharing with people All of these things that we are saying we are doing and aspiring to do better, certainly never saying we're perfect, but like trying to always hold ourselves to a higher standard. And when you start to tell that story publicly, human rights, you know, supply chain issues is a great example. A lot of companies don't ever want to talk about it. The more you talk about it, the more you kind of put a target on your back. And we're actually okay with that because we feel like proactive and frequent communication with our customer around how we're tracking against these different elements of the standard is ultimately a good thing. And people are okay with sometimes if you say, oh, we missed this mark. You know, we here's here's a goal that we're tracking a little bit farther behind on than we want to. Uh, sharing that kind of while the process is unfolding is ultimately what today's customer and certainly the ritual customer expects and wants. So let's talk about what inspires you. 
As I mentioned in the intro, you've been involved with more than 20 state and federal laws. That's a, that's a pretty uh, impressive number, specifically focused on toxic chemicals. Um, and maybe there were some other things too as well, but that's one, one of the things I noticed. Most sustainability professionals really shy away from getting involved with policy work. Why do you embrace it? I think um, it was kind of by accident, if I'm being honest, Heather. So I was actually, I was first working on energy conservation and global warming in the early days of my career. And I believe that grassroots organizing and consumer education or public education is one of the most important tools we can have out there. But I spent a lot of time at a lot of fairs when I was young out of college talking to people about changing from incandescent light bulbs to CFLs, which was a big conversation at the time. And then I started doing this internship for an energy-focused nonprofit. And early in my career, I was part of a process to pass a renewable energy standard in the state of Minnesota. And the light bulb, like figuratively and literally went off in my head where I realized I can tell as many people I know about switching to CFLs, or we can start to regulate pollution from coal plants. And it was like the scale of, yes, the policy world is super, it's very tense. It's not for the faint of heart. You have to deal with a lot of politicking and all that kind of stuff. But when you win, you win really big. And so I think it had I not had those kind of like early wins in my career, I don't know if I would have gone this trajectory in my career. Um, but I also have um, kind of high threshold for dealing with politics as a means to an end. And I think that the large scale change, which is ultimately what I want to see, and I think many of us want to, makes policy frameworks and policy wins uh, a large venue and avenue for where I've spent the majority of my career. Mm -hmm. So what, what inspired you to focus on this kind of a career in the first place, you know, like environmental sustainability, ESG, what pulled you in? I, I was actually lucky enough to go to a public high school that was focused on environmental studies, which is pretty cool. Uh, I grew up in the state of Minnesota, and um, there was a public school for juniors and seniors that had interdisciplinary curriculum around the environment. So in the winter, we were learning outdoor skills, winter ecology, and reading Jack London. It was like a cool concept. Um, and that, I feel like, you know, young, passionate activist Lindsay was born from that moment. Uh, mm -hmm. And then when I was in college, I decided to continue studying both political science and environmental science, not knowing exactly where the career would take me. Um, I definitely didn't think I would get into consumer safety and toxic chemicals and consumer products. That was also kind of by accident. Um, but it was kind of a nice trajectory to show um, basically all the things that I had learned in those early days in high school really were kind of the seeds that were planted uh, for today. So reflecting on how you've got to where you are right now, what do you believe has been the most important factor in your success? You know, that's a good question. I think the biggest thing is to know your audience. And that is so basic, but it is honestly, it's the thing I think about most every day, because if I'm lobbying a Democrat or a Republican, or if I'm talk, if I'm helping Ritual think about how on a social media post, we're going to talk to a customer about things like post-consumer recycled pack plastic, you know, like you have to think about what, what that person is going to think and um, meet them where they are. And I think that the same holds true for you know, a lot of the kind of invisible burden of these types of roles is spending time internally getting an alignment and buy-in from your peers within a company. 
even mission-based companies, you know, you, a lot of that stakeholder engagement comes to play and knowing your audience when you're talking, if I'm talking to an operations or a finance person, if I'm just talking about what I'm passionate about as a chief impact officer, none of my stuff is going to see the light of day. So you like just knowing your audience, I think has been the, the biggest driver for success. And certainly when it comes to lobbying, but obviously my career has focused in other areas besides public policy. And I think it's the kind of one through line. Somewhat related question. What has been your most successful leadership habit or strategy? I, I love managing teams. And I think especially in my current role and at Beauty Counter and even previous when I was in DC, I was managing for a coalition, a very large steering committee of diverse um, organizations. Um, one of the things that I learned from a previous mentor and boss of mine was to do kind of a quick check-in at the beginning of team calls um, to basically, without judgment, get a read on how present people are. And um, that has been a really effective tool, both for myself, but for others to realize that you can show up as your whole self to work. Sometimes you're very busy with other work priorities and you're mentally not in that meeting or you want to multitask or whatever. And just like calling that out right in the beginning of a meeting has been a helpful way to create the space and recognition for the fact that we all have a lot of competing priorities, um, whether it's family and our personal needs and all that kind of good stuff. And it, I think has shown and kind of created a shared sense of empathy that at the end of the day, I care about driving a lot of work, making a lot of progress, but we're all still humans. And like having that human connection, I think is pretty important. Mm -hmm. You mentioned mentoring a moment ago. How has your ability to mentor others to help change your own career trajectory or outlook, you know, in other words, working with the next generation of leadership, what have you learned and, and, uh, learned from them? Uh, I think, so I like to spend a lot of time mentoring people, um, especially, you know, young college students right now, I have an intern, a college student intern. I feel like kids are a lot smarter <laughs> or young professionals are a lot smarter than I was when I was, um, at their point in, I feel like I've learned the skill or maybe the desire to stay curious. I feel like the curiosity of people that I have mentored has been really contagious. And sometimes, you know, well, I have a lot of the same conversations over and over. Sometimes it can start to feel a little bit stale, um, but the kind of like energy and curiosity and hope for things being different for this next generation is something that I definitely take away from those relationships. Mm -hmm. One final question for you. What advice would you give to anyone of any age pursuing a career related to corporate climate action? Pick your battles. There's, it is so easy to want to do absolutely everything and to know what the science says. And the science is very compelling and very scary. And it impassions all of us to try to do as much as we can. Um, but knowing when you're going to fall on your sword is, again, one of the biggest pieces of advice my, my boss in DC gave me. And, um, you know, getting 70% of what you want is better than I was sitting at 0% for another 10 years. Great. Well, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Heather. You just heard from Lindsay Dahl, Chief Impact Officer with Ritual and one of this year's Women in Sustainability Leadership Award honorees. Well, that's a wrap for the week. Thanks to Dylan for lending her voice to this episode. 
I'll be back next week with Joel McCower for another edition of Green Biz 350. Meanwhile, I encourage you to sign up for our newsletters at www.greenbiz.com forward slash newsletters hyphen subscribe. We have seven of them. I am especially fond of Climate Tech Rundown, which offers you two editions each week of our groundbreaking climate tech coverage. Signing off for now, I'm Heather Clancy. Take care and be well.